Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the gathering of uh, Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you are here to join with us. Um, as my voice gets dialed in and out, we're, we're thankful that you're here to worship with us, uh, to sing songs that remind us of uh, uh, what it is that Christ has accomplished for us, and then also to, to zoom in uh, in, a, in an act of worship at what the scriptures re- would reveal about how we are to take that gospel and apply it to our regular lives. And, uh, and that's really what we're trying to do in our time around the scriptures this morning. Um, by the way, it is the first Sunday of the month, which means that it is a communion Sunday. Uh, it's when we celebrate the Lord's table, um, when he established something that we are supposed to do by way of remembrance of him, his death, his resurrection, and his payment for our sins. Um, so that we might be redeemed by his blood. And so we'll talk more about that in a little bit. That's part of our morning worship service. Um, but uh, we want to look at the scriptures um, at this juncture in our, in our time together. So if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, we began um, verses 13 through 23 last week, and we got halfway through, and we'll finish that this morning. And uh, the message is about go- uh, gospel unity. And uh, the, the, the subheading would be Handle with Care. And so before we pray, I, I would encourage you to think about things this way. Is it, is it not curious to you? It's always curious to me when you think about like the pattern of Scripture and the things that God um, in His, uh, in his uh, divine sovereignty, what He inspires the writers of Scripture to pen down. Here's the book of Romans. Um, One of the greatest books in the New Testament, maybe one of the greatest books in all the scripture, in terms of talking about God's, his foreknowledge, his foreplanning, his intention to save sinners, and this is why he needs to save them. This is how he intends to save them. This is who Jesus Christ is and how he has paid the penalty of our sins so that we might be redeemed, though we don't deserve it, that we might be brought into his family. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's amazing. And in the midst of this book, right, a book that just has 16 chapters, he dedicates an entire chapter and a little bit extra to the idea of gospel unity. I I think that's curious. That's a large chunk of, of inspired text to lean in towards this topic of how we get along with each other. Um, Adam had a great scripture reading uh, selection, I think, this morning that fits the same theme in 1 John. If we claim that we love God, our Savior, and yet we hold bitterness or we, are, we have some hatred towards our brother, the love of God is not in us. Strong statements. Right? Again, a large chunk of 1 John dedicated to that. We also talked about in reference to 1 uh, Corinthians, there's at least a chapter or a chapter and a half or so of the same concept that there are guys struggling because you are eating meat offered to idols and you're doing that, flaunting your liberty in their face. They're offended and at the same time they feel like judging you. Why is there so much emphasis on this need for us to apply the gospel to how Christians, those that call upon the name of Christ, how they get along with each other? It's because we are still, right? We are still touched by sin. We still struggle with understanding and separating what is, what is righteous in the eyes of God from what is righteous in my own eyes. We will constantly, as believers, as Christians, constantly struggle with making uh, our religion, our faith, our pursuit of the things of Christ an issue of our works. What I do, Lord, I do this, I sacrifice all this time, I, I put all this energy into this. Why are you allowing these things to happen to my life? These are the natural hang-ups that, that, um, that sinners still bring into even their redeemed Christian lives. And so I don't think, if you've been a Christian for longer than a day, I don't think I have to tell you that you will probably at some point have had some interpersonal issue with either you know, your spouse, 
um, your, your, your roommates, right? Um, other believers in your small group. Whatever, there was some pushback or pushed in or, or pushed out of shape. There was something that happened probably in the last you know, week or two or maybe longer that demonstrates that we are still quite immature in terms of how we should deal with one another. That's why the scripture has so much to say about it. And in a book, the book of Romans, in a letter that is so filled with doctrinal precision about getting the gospel right, under divine inspiration, Paul felt that he needed to to make sure that he is putting proper emphasis on the idea of how the gospel impacts the way that we deal with each other gospel unity and everything he says about it implies that we need to handle it with care that it's so easy for us to break hearts to injure one another to be unkind or to be unthoughtful to see everything the way that we see it and then demand others to kind of see it the right way we hear that all the time right you got to be on the right side of history right well listen All of us as believers want to be on the right side of God's righteousness. But how we deal with each other concerning all of those liberties, concerning all of those differences, concerning everything that is unique and different in our perspective and and how we understand and look at things, that's the measure of gospel maturity. That's the measure of the redeemed life of a group of believers in the family that is the body of Christ. So as we look at uh, this issue of gospel unity in Romans chapter 14, let me just pray for us, and we're going we're gonna, to um, um, do a quick scan through in the first few verses, and then we're going to look at the, the section that we haven't been able to get to this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come to the issue of, uh, of just being united in the things of Christ, we recognize regularly, Lord, that we find ourselves in situations where we assume upon our brother, our sister in Christ, That they think about things the way that we think about things. And when that doesn't happen, Lord, we can be offended or they can be offended. Or there are so many opportunities for us to destroy, Lord, the very unity of love that you have won by the death of Jesus Christ, your son. And I pray that that wouldn't be us. That when we encounter such moments, that we would take the log out of our own eyes And that we would be thoughtful about those that are offended or injured. That we would be all the more careful that we do what is right and that we speak what is true, but all the while do it in a spirit of grace and love because you, your son, was characterized by grace and truth. And so, Lord, as we look to the scriptures this morning, we ask for a blessing upon this time upon our understanding of the reading of Scripture, as well as um, uh, reinforcing just the gospel blessing of Jesus' death on our behalf, even as we take of the Lord's table later, Lord, to remind us of how good and excellent um, the gospel is for us. We pray these things and ask for your kindness towards us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me just say a couple more words of, of introduction as, as we think about these things. Um, um, there is built in us um, a moral compass. Animals do not have that, right? Even smart animals like your dog, right? I love dogs because I feel like they, they exhibit emotions. So I, I feel like they're the closest thing to human beings. So I love dogs, right? I don't have a dog because my wonderful wife, she, she doesn't love dogs. And so... You know, that, that is that's unfortunate. But that, that's the reality, right? Um, but even dogs, porpoises, I don't know what other things that you guys, what other animals you think are smart. Like none of them are made in the image of God. And, and not being image bearers and us being image bearers means that one of the elements that we receive from the Lord is a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. And you see that even in entire cultures where they have no concept of the Bible or Jesus um, or they just kind of generally think of some higher power or, or some pagan God. That we all organize in any subculture, in any point in history, if there's a group of human beings that get together, there are certain things that they believe is right and wrong. We may disagree culture to culture what is right and wrong, but everyone has that. Why? Because we're created in His image, so we bear a sense of morality. Our conscience is connected with that. 
It, it is our intuition about what is okay and what isn't okay. Now, that's been informed by our culture, by tradition, by others who have spoken into us. And so all of us have some sensibility to ourselves about what we think is okay and not okay to do or not to do, to say or not to say, to feel or not to feel. Having said that, what the sinner does with that moral impulse is either kill it, let's pretend there is no morals, and every time I feel guilty, let me just splurge into my sin so that I stop feeling guilty. I don't want to be mastered by guilt. The key term in that is repression. And you hear that from unbelievers. Like, man, you Christians, like, there's so many things you can't do. Like, you're so repressed. Suggesting that because you can't do them, there is something stinted, right? There's something that you are shunting, that you're cutting off in terms of your capacity to enjoy, to express, to, to be passionate about, to be angry about, etc. You don't get to express. You don't get to do. Repression, Right? So that's how you kill your kind. You keep on destroying that moral compass, or at least if it's pointing this way and you don't like it pointing that way, you keep banging on it until it points a different way. The other thing we might do with that, all right, is legalism. Or maybe a better term is self-righteousness. We take that compass and we say, man, my compass is good. It's pointing this way. Something's wrong with your conscience. Something's wrong with your compass. And I think I need to inform you that you're not doing this right. We demand of you, right, the same thing that I would demand of myself, that you live this way, you stop listening to that kind of music, you stop eating that kind of meat, stop drinking those kind of libations, right? I demand of you to live in a certain way because if you don't live in a certain way, I'm worried that you're not a Christian like me. So that is a doubling down on our compass. Those are the two ways that we could fail, um, and this is why it is a fail. Because on the one hand, you are trying to kill that which God has designed for you to calibrate, to be a guide and a help for you in the growth of, of your, your Christian maturing, sanctifying life. And on the other hand, if you are impressing upon others certain preferences that you have and demanding that to be a measure of righteousness, then now who is God? God just has these general principles and you go beyond God to have these other extenuating things that you must do? This is the problem with self-righteousness and this is the problem with livaciousness. They're just doing whatever you want to do. You end up right, being untrue to what God actually says. His principles laid out in Scripture and you end up being unloving in regard to people. That's the danger of not, not emphasizing this kind of gospel care, this gospel unity for one another. And what you will notice, and I hope you have noticed it, even as we looked at the, the first part of, uh, of, this, uh, of this passage, is that Paul doesn't back down from speaking what is true. And you'll find that in the ministry of Jesus. Like Jesus at the, with the woman at the well, Right? When she says, hey, you know, your people say you got to worship here. Our people say we got to worship here. And Jesus makes, her, makes it absolutely clear, right? The salvation has always been from the Jews. And as a Samaritan woman, she might find great offense to that, but he speaks exactly what is true. But then he offers her at the same time living water. So it's not that we are to back off from what is true. The key is we need to make sure it's God's truth and not just mine, number one. And number two... We need to give space for people to step into maybe a different conviction, a challenge to their liberties, or a challenge to what they believe is, is absolutely true, etc. To give them space to think about who God is, what he actually says, and how we might pursue that in this life to his glory and not to our own righteousness or to our own shame. Now, that's a lot to say, but I think that is so that we might emphasize um, what Scripture is trying to emphasize, that there is something important about a gospel community standing in unity with one another despite our differences and despite our different convictions. Because unless Scripture says it, we need to be gracious to all others concerning these things, these preferences, 
We need to recognize them as preferences so that we are representing Christ well. Gospel unity, handled with care. So let's, let's walk through um, the first uh, couple of, uh, first few verses that we've already covered. First was love your conscientious brother. And what we mean by that is your brother is conscientious and he is your brother. Right? And I apologize for the non-inclusive brother and sister, but um, the, as you can see, sister would have made the slide kind of a little too long, right? But the idea is love your conscientious family member, brother, or sister in Christ. They have a sensitive conscience, and you are not to just kind of run roughshod over that or demand them to change or demand an immediate right, recalibration of their conscience. It may be that their conscience needs some recalibration. But you are not the Holy Spirit, and so you are to approach them and uh, encourage them in love. Love your conscientious brother. Um, and so we begin here. Verse 13. How do you love your conscientious brother? Well, you do not judge them, and you don't stumble them. Therefore, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In other words, there is the capacity of some to put a stumbling block. And we say the stumbling block is if you leave like a box, right, out in the hallway because you went to the car to get another box and someone walking, not paying attention, boom, they might trip over that, right? A stumbling block. It implies that it wasn't intentional, it's just kind of out there, but people might stumble over that. It's not a good idea, not a safe idea, right? The RA will get mad at you. Then the second one, though, the word for hindrance is is the actual stick that stick or string or whatever is the is the snap is the trigger for your trap that one's more intentional that one suggests that you are you are about the task of trying to trip them up so that they would get over this silliness that they would grow up and realize that that their sensitivities are wrong and wrong-headed and it's saying, don't do that. Don't stumble your brother or sister in Christ, right? Don't judge them. Don't stand over them in criticism. Secondly, how do you love your conscientious brother? By understanding what uncleanness actually is. And remember we said um, in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Paul says explicitly in the first half of that verse, I have come to know, perfect tense, and I have come to be persuaded in the Lord Jesus, perfect tense, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. He makes a theological statement absolutely clear. So that's what I mean. He doesn't back down from truth. He is saying very explicitly, there's no such thing as something that is edible being unclean to you. And Jesus said the same thing. What goes into the mouth, hopefully is well digested, right? And is eliminated. It's a biological process. Goes in, gets taken care of, and then goes out, right? That's not what makes you defiled or unclean. What makes you unclean is what's in your soul, what's in your heart, your attitudes, your desires, your actions. They flow out of the heart. That's what makes someone unclean. So he establishes there is nothing that you eat, because the particular uh, thing that he is addressing here is the idea of eating meat probably meat offered to idols but we don't know it's just he just uses it at least in rome is just a general concept of eating meat and some people don't eat meat and he says that eating of that meat of eating any meat is not in itself unclean but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean if it feels like sin to you and you do it against your conscience even if it's not sin biblically speaking you are probably training yourself to do what your compass is telling you is wrong and that's sin. That's sin. If you are coming to the realization that this is what Scripture says, and you know, at least in your, in your mind, and in your understanding of what Scripture says, and you realize, okay, this, this is not sin. Right? Listening to BTS is not sin. I, I think I heard a bunch of amens just now, but okay, I, let's, let's, let's move on. Right? Like, so if you, if you establish, scripturally speaking, this is not th- doing this, watching this, eating this, this is not in and of itself sin, but your conscience is still sensitive to that, then you could step into that space a little bit, right? And go, okay, so if someone's playing that, you know, as, as they're driving, I'm not going to necessarily judge them. Right? So you, now you're starting to recalibrate your conscience a little bit. 
But if you actually believe it's sin at that moment and you just step in and go, man, I think that's so sinful. It's against God, you know? Hand me the meat, right? Then you're actually sinning is Paul's point. So love your conscientious brother by not stumbling them, by understanding uncleanness so that you could define terms scripturally as Paul is saying that he already understands, but at the same time recognizing that their sensitivity means that they could actually sin. Even if it's not biblical sin, they could sin against their conscience against God because they are jumping in even though in their mind, in their hearts, they believe it is wrong. Third, you love your conscientious brother by walking in love with your brother. And uh, we said a lot about that, and we can't say all that we want to say about that. Verse 15 says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. If you are grieving your brother or sister in Christ, you are not walking in love. Can we say that just generally? Some of you guys feel like you have the gift of rebuking, right? Like every time you come to church, you got to think, okay, now let me see. What, what do I see that I need, to, I need to exercise my spiritual gifts? I know that we've emphasized that, right? As a church body, we got to emphasize. My spiritual gift is rebuking, so let me show up and just start rebuking people. Hey, those, those short shorts you're wearing, brother, too short, too short, you know? Sin, cut that out. That stuff is stumbling me, right? right? Like, and you're just going through, like your coffee, too strong, too strong. I can smell it from here on your breath, you know, even through that mask. No good, right? Like you can go through and then decide all these things that you want to rebuke. The key, though, is in verse 15, Paul makes it clear, you cannot love your conscientious brother if you are grieving them, if you're injuring them. Injuring them and their conscience is not walking in love. Especially when you take the example that he gives at the end of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. Let me just say one thing about that verse that I love. The contrast is between the word for destroy... And the word for died. It, it may not seem like a contrast, but it is. The word for destroy there, and we'll say something about it when we come to another word for destroy, a different word for destroy later on um, in, uh, in this same passage. But the word for destroy there is the word that means that, uh, that you cause something to be completely ruined. And when used of life, it means to cause something to perish. So I, I think in almost kind of a, you know, a, a perfect contrast of ideas, he is saying, because of your infatuation about meat, you are causing to perish the one from whom Christ died. And so by that, he is doing this comparison. He's saying, you are killing your brother. And the opposite is Christ, who was killed for your brother. So he is literally contrasting your recklessness, right? By your freedom and by your judgmentalism, how you are breaking your brother or your sister in Christ, you are killing them. And here is Christ, what did he do? He was killed for them. And so he's implying like how how ridiculous you as a Christian are if by what you eat you are killing the one for whom Christ himself was actually killed to save. Your undoing the work of Christ might be a simple summary of, of that last phrase. So love your conscientious brother. Walk in love, not in destruction for them. Prioritize gospel blessing. Prioritize gospel blessing. How do you, uh, or what are these gospel blessings? So the first is uh, gospel unity. And verse 16 says this. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And you remember I said that it is possible contextually that maybe Paul is saying that what, what you know to be good, meaning meat, right? Don't let people speak badly of your liberty. That could be, right? But I don't think it fits as well in the context. And he's not necessarily connecting the dots that specifically. I think if you take more that last phrase that you are killing him for whom Christ himself was killed so that that person might live, then I think he's talking about something greater. He's saying, don't allow what you know to be an excellent and good and wondrous thing, right, to be spoken of as evil. Why, why would that happen? Well, it happened because um, because the unity that the gospel gives us, right, that could break down when we're criticizing one another, when we're judging one another, you know, the weaker conscience. How dare you eat that meat, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about your faith, right? 
And the other guy's saying, you're not sure about my faith? How about I eat it in your face, right? And just kind of like back and forth. Like it destroys gospel unity. And I think that's what Paul is saying. You know how good, right? How good the fellowship of believers is meant to be. You know how good it is to fully belong, to be fully embraced and to be accepted Regardless of your distinctions, your differences, your differences, opinions, that you believe in the same God, you believe in the same Jesus Christ, you have laid down your life because you believe that he has laid down his life for you. And because by faith you accept that he alone is the only means by which you may be clothed in righteousness, because of all those things, how good it is that we have unity in the gospel. And then you would allow others to speak evil of that gospel unity as they watch the church and say, look at those guys fighting. There's a church in, um, in an area in the South Bay that made the news. Um, this is a, a, maybe a couple decades ago now. I won't say the church's name. I'm tempted to, but I won't say the church's name. Right? But um, there's a time when there was such a strong split amongst uh, the elders and the pastor and, and a couple of the elders that, um, that these are these like 60-something-year-old men. A fist fight broke out, right, in the parking lot. Police were called. People were separated. Hits the news. Let, let me ask you, what, what do unbelievers think about that? Oh, man, I should go to church more often and buy tickets, man. This is all. No. They, they wag their fingers as they rightly should and say, see, that's, that's, that's the hypocrisy of all that stuff that Christians always talk about. They're hate mongers. And if they don't have anyone else to hate, they just hate each other, right? Don't let others speak evil of that which we regard as good. I think that's the point of verse 16. So prioritize gospel blessings, right? And uh, one of those gospel blessings is, um, is gospel unity. So don't, don't, don't blemish that. Don't, don't let evil be spoken of that. And secondly, don't shrink kingdom blessings, so what are the other blessings that we are to prioritize? Well, verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's saying there, don't shrink down all the blessings. What are the blessings? Things like righteousness, peace, and joy. The blessings of the gospel. Don't shrink, those, shrink away from those things and shrink down your kingdom concept of blessing to what you get to eat and what you get to drink or what you shouldn't eat and what you shouldn't drink. There, you know, when we're saying it that way, I know you guys recognize how foolish that sounds. But it happens to us constantly, doesn't it? That we're reducing, right, the blessings of the kingdom, eternal things, like righteousness, peace, and joy, to what kind of, what kind of music you've been listening to, man? You know? What movie did you see? Listen, there, there's room and space, I think, to talk about all those things and say that some things are not wise. But to destroy our, our fellowship or to imply unbelief because people are making decisions that we don't think are wise demonstrates that we're shrinking the kingdom down to things, right? There are some parts of the country where it's still um, looked down upon to wear blue jeans. I know I said blue jeans. I think that makes me really old, right? Because everyone just, everyone just calls them jeans now because they're not always blue. Nevertheless, right? Um, because they believe, and some Christians believe, that, that that was a mark of worldliness. We talked about the example of stockings, right? Um, back in the, the early turn of this century. Oh, no, 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 last century, the 1920s, right? Talking about stockings or blue jeans, right? Like, it's an interesting thing that, that we are kind of captive to. You have to do, and we shrink the kingdom and its blessings, righteousness, peace, joy, down to, wait, did you go, you went swimming, but were there guys and girls? There was mixed bathing going on? No, no, we weren't bathing, man. We were like, we were swimming in water. No, that's, that's, mixed, that's mixed bathing, brother, right? Like, how did we come to that? Well, we come to that because we're shrinking the blessings of the kingdom down to things, small things, petty things that should not have the right of uh, being greater than eternal things like righteousness, peace, and joy. And finally, prioritize gospel blessings. How? By serving Christ well. And this is what I mean by that. Verse 18 says, Whoever thus serves Christ, thus serves Christ, is acceptable to God and approved by men. The thus means this is, right, in this way. 
In what way? Emphasizing righteousness, peace, and joy. And the servant of Christ that, that focuses on the eternal gospel blessings finds him or herself acceptable to God and approved by men. And that's the goal. How do you prioritize gospel blessings? By serving Christ in a way that finds us acceptable to God and approved, respected by others. Listen, if you're, if you're doing the general Sherman thing where you're just burning a path everywhere you go, right, as a Christian, something's not right about the exercise of gospel truth in your life. So love your conscious brother, prioritize gospel blessing, and then let's take a look at these two. Pursue gospel caring. Pursue gospel caring. Verse 19. How do we pursue gospel caring? We'll begin by pursuing building up. Verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I like the ESV. Um, It uses that that term mutual upbuilding. Other modern translations might say mutual edification. The word that is used there means exactly that. It's a word that means to build or put, to, put into place a building. Um, we, um, we haven't in a, in a couple years, but we'll send a team to Baja, Mexico, and some of our guys, a lot of our young people will go, and they help build, right, literally build a small house for a family. They will put up, they will build up an actual edifice a house a structure that's that word and paul is so fond of that word that out of the 18 times this word for edification or for building up is used in the new testament 15 of those times is used in the paul's in paul's epistles he loves this word for mutual upbuilding for mutual edification for building up the pieces so that it stands strong he says, so go back to the first part of verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. And don't let the let us kind of throw you off. Um, that'll happen a lot in our scriptures. Because um, we, in our English, we don't have a, a third person or a first person command. Right? Like if I say, hey, go get me a coffee. Dum-dum. Right? Or even if I remove the dum-dum. Go get me a coffee, right? That's a command, and you can insert who's the subject of that? You. You go get me a coffee. And I could mean that you individually. Gary, you go get me a coffee. Or I could mean that all of you. Like, every person that is here, I want like 100, 200 coffee. Go get me a coffee, right? Command is in the second person. We don't have a first person plural command. Gary, we get me a coffee, right? Like, it doesn't sound right. And so the, the, the closest thing that we have to that, right, and that's kind of where the structure is going, is, is Paul the Apostle is trying to say that this isn't a command just for you guys. This is a command for me too. He's saying let us together, and that's the best way to express a command that's meant for all of us to do. Let us pursue. And it's a word that means to chase something down, to follow after something. In fact, in certain contexts, this is the word for persecute. So think about it this way. Get him, says every bad guy, right? Like in all those movies, right? Like, get him, right? Like, because I don't know why the good guy happened to be there and he didn't think about, you know, getting him right away. Go get him. That, that, that's, that's exactly the thing. But it's like, let us get that. Let us, let us pursue that. Let us chase that down. What is that? Whatever it is that makes for peace, that we are at peace one to another. And of course, that's rooted in our peace with God but what makes for peace with each other and for mutual building up of edifying, of helping each other grow in the things of Christ. So I, I think this isn't a call. So in case you are leaning towards, okay, I'm, here, I'm hearing what you're saying. We've got to protect gospel unity at all costs. So you know what? That brother is kind of doing some stuff. I'm not, I'm not too sure that's a good idea, right? And, um, but I'm not going to say anything. No, no. The call is for us to diligently chase down, right? Not just unity at any cost, but to chase down what builds up. And so if you have some habits, right? Like maybe, maybe it's not necessarily sin, but you're binge watching this stuff on Netflix or you're, you're staying up crazy late and it's not good for your health. You know, you are grumpy in the morning. You are running late for work or school and these things are happening. Do I say, okay, out of gospel unity, I'm not going to say anything? No, I step into that space in love and I think of what would build you up and say, hey, listen, I know you love the Lord. That's not, a, that's not the question here. But would it be more wise for you to kind of go to sleep earlier, you know, to get some rest? And, you know, would it be a good idea for you? 
we are meant to step into that space because we're supposed to pursue the building up of one another, encouraging one another towards the things of Christ so that every believer, if they are in our midst, right, is being encouraged towards sanctification, growth, and service to the Lord. Pursue gospel caring by pursuing building up. The second um, point under this, right, is verse 20. Then abandon your tearing down. Verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Not for the sake of food, destroy. And, and as I said, this is, a, this is, in our English, it's translated the same word, but it's a different Greek word for destroy. The first word that was used earlier, remember we said that it, is, it was a, a word that means to bring to ruin, so that it, if you're talking about a living being, that you're causing it to die, that it would perish away. This is the word that literally is built on a prefix that means down, and the second part means to destroy or dissolve or demolish. Our English word tear down is a perfect replication of this Greek word, right? Do not for the sake of food tear down the work of God. How would you tear down the work of God? You're causing that child of God, that brother or sister in Christ, that Christ is willing to lay down his life to rescue from their sins. You're tearing them down. You're tearing down God's excellent work in them. So if by way of either our critique, our criticism, maybe even our you know, misguided way of trying to encourage or to, to, to help you know, individuals kind of walking along the course of their spiritual lives, in, in our trying, if it turns out that we are instead tearing them down, making them doubt their, their, their faith, making them doubt the things of the Lord, making them hate the things of the church, then we're doing the opposite work than what we're intending to do. We're supposed to pursue building up. So we are to let go all of this tearing down. Well, Christian, that Christian, right, that you might be tearing down is God's excellent work of grace. And you need to to seek not to, to break down and to stumble, to trap or to cause to fall aside to the side those for whom God has forgiven, accepted, and adopted to be his own child. Right, And so, so that we're clear, the second part of verse 20, in terms of the command is, you know, don't, for the sake of food, for something so petty and small and unnecessary, for the, I mean, okay, it's necessary, right? Maybe I misspoke that, right? It's necessary, but it is not that significant. But for the sake of food, he's saying, you are tearing down God's work in another human being, in a brother or sister in Christ. And he says the last part of verse 20, everything is indeed clean. So he doubles down on what is true. See, listen, you can understand, and I can understand, why the strong conscience, the person that knows what is right, that says, listen, this is just meat offered to idols, you can understand that they might be frustrated with the person that's sensitive about, yeah, but that meat, you know, it went through like these vendors that are like pagan worshipers, and they they promised and asked like, pagan blessing upon it and spirits to fill it etc right you can imagine this individual going there there is no such thing like there's no gods there's no rival to the throne right it's not that big of a you can imagine their frustration because they know that they are factually correct but being correct and being righteous do you guys realize that's not always the same thing righteousness is not merely being correct Righteousness is acting in a way, especially in our relationships, that is kind and good and is like God, right? In how we deal with one another. That we do what is right for the sake of the other, which sometimes means giving up some of our freedoms. Everything is indeed clean. So he doubles down on what he has said earlier. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is true that uh, there is no such thing as, as evil meat, right? As evil drink. Um, but we can make it bad. We can tear down if we, by our insistence, end up destroying right, the work of God in a fellow believer because I just need to eat that meat and it's my freedom and you're dumb. 
It's about watching how we conduct ourselves, right? Pursue building up, abandon tearing down. Those make sense. And then the third principle of how we pursue gospel caring, give preference to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Give preference to them. Verse 21 says, it is, good to, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It is good not to partake in all these things that you are otherwise free to partake in. Let me say a couple of things. The word for good here is kalos. It's a word that means that it is good in the sense of, of aesthetically good, not just good versus something that is morally evil. This is the word that means it is good and excellent. It is beautiful. It is noble. Beautiful might be a good way to kind of translate that. It is a beautiful thing when a brother or sister in Christ is willing to forego meat or drink or anything because it might cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And let me also say this. The phrase is, it is good not to eat meat. The phrase is not, it is, it is not good to eat meat. And why am I saying that? Because well, you don't want to think that Paul is saying, okay, see, so that's for everybody. All of you stop eating meat and drinking or doing anything else, right? No, he is saying that anything that we're willing to forego for the sake of our brother, that is a good thing. That's giving preference. That's preferring them and their sensitivity over my freedoms and for my delights. 1 Corinthians 8.13, Paul says it this way. There he's talking very specifically about meat offered to idols. And he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, understand in that same 1 Corinthians, he similarly said there is no such thing as gods. There are no other gods. There is one God. And whatever we think might have been offered to gods, they do nothing to the meat that's still meat. All right? So he has already established that truth claim in 1 Corinthians 8. But by the time he gets to verse 13, he's saying, but if it's an injurious thing for my brother or sister in Christ, I will stop eating meat forever. It's not an absolute necessity to me. Do I like it? I'm not, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of Paul, but I think he likes it. I likes it. So I assume he likes it, right? But he's saying he'd be willing to give that up. If it causes a brother to stumble, or a sister to stumble. And this is the best kind of conviction. We talk about conviction all the time, and we usually use it in reference to my conviction and how you are different from my conviction. But this is the best kind of conviction. Not the conviction that says that I have a right to whatever I want to do. Not the kind of conviction that says I, uh, that, that I shouldn't do this, and by the way, neither should you do this because it's, it's better for us not to. But it's the kind of conviction that says that, man, unless it's sinful for me to not, you know, to forego meat, I'm willing to forego anything. My conviction, my conviction is to give up anything, right? Not just eat meat, drink wine, says, but to do anything that causes my brother to stumble. That's Paul's conviction, and that is a beautiful conviction. That is, it is good. That is what is beautiful and noble and excellent and very Christ-like, and can I say, is an excellent way to handle gospel unity. Right? Because we're pursuing gospel caring. All right. Last one. Keep faith with a good conscience. Keep faith with a good conscience. This is verse 22 and 23. And just two points under that. Verse 22 says, <clears throat> verse 22 says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. I, I think verse 22 is directed to the strong. That's what come up with strong, you know, in the parentheses. You are to live your faith guiltlessly. Guiltless. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And I, I don't mean, I, I don't think Paul is suggesting that you need to keep all the things of your faith secret. I think the idea is that you have faith, Right? And your faith is with Christ in God. And keep then that faith. Believe, know that this is freedom, then enjoy that freedom. But the main person that you need to express that freedom to is God, not, not necessarily to others. Right? So there may be times when in mixed company you choose that um, I'm not going to order a beer. Because I know there might be some believers here that, that might struggle with that. Right? 
I think it's freedom. I think it's okay, but I, I choose not to. Right? There might be times when you choose that you won't you know, attend or go to that movie. Right? And, and because you're thinking about others as well, because they want to go to it. Some people want to go to it. And you know, at least that one brother or sister is like really bothered by the idea that these guys are going to go see that thing. Right? And so you're thinking, okay, you know, I'm okay with not doing that. Right? Am I free before God? Do I have faith that I could go see that? And it's okay. I do. But I'm thinking about this other brother or sister in Christ. Right? That faith that you have to keep that. Paul's saying, don't wander from that. Remain in that space and keep that between you and God. It's not an issue of saving faith, right? It's an issue of personal convictions and preferences. And so if you know it to be right, then let it be right, and you know, and God knows, and so we should be okay. The second phrase, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Let me just say, first of all, the word blessed has come off and come, you know, has a, a very rich history in the scriptures, right? Especially in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is the one that really kind of begins making this term blessed or blessed a unique and significant one. It does go back all the way to Psalm 1, the, the introductory psalm to the rest of the psalms, to the rest of the hymnal of faith, right? And Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the... I'm messing that up again, right? I was trying to do. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners, right? No? Walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat, something like that, right? And I, please forgive me. I, see, that's why I should write down my cross-references instead of just trying to shoot them off the top of my head because my head has, has weird connections. Nevertheless, right? The, the point being that the idea of the blessed man is begun in the Old Testament and Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he doubles down on that and he says, blessed is this kind of person. Blessed is this person. Blessed is this person. And all of that, a lot of times we, 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 we translate that and I think understandably we translate that as happy. Because that's what it means. It means to be so blessed, so God-favored that everything is good. But happy, in our English language, often simply is an emotion. This is happiness, yes, but at its core, more than emotions. It is the gladness of contentedness, of joy, of confidence, because we are right with the Lord. And he's saying, how confidently joyful is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. Well, why, why is he passing judgment on himself? He doesn't have to feel a guilt because in the exercises of his faith, he is hurting somebody, right? He doesn't have to feel guilt because, because in the sensitivity of his conscience, he is injured by somebody. He's saying this is what we're trying to attain to, right? A joyful contentedness, a stability and strength of gladness, that comes from knowing that we are doing our best to do what is right before the Lord and our faith stands with Him and we are doing our best not to injure but to encourage those that are around us. I like what one commentator says. I'll read it for you then I'll translate it. Right? It is a rare felicity to have a conscience untroubled by scruples. See, this is why I have to translate that for you because <laughs> I have to translate it for myself. I was like, oh, wait, that sounds good but what does that mean? This is what it means. He's saying it is a rare felicity, meaning great happiness. It's a rare happiness to have a conscience that is untroubled by these preferences, by these scruples, these preferences. My preferences or your preferences, and then my conscience is always dinged because of it. Because I'm sensitive to something or I'm not sensitive to something, right? It is a, it is a rare, joyful, blessed person that is good. Because they know who God is and what they are and what their faith means. And they're good with other people as well. I'll give you one illustration that I like. Charles Spurgeon, at the height of his fame, was one day walking down the street and saw a sign which read, We sell the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. Whereupon Spurgeon immediately gave up the habit of cigar smoking. I, th I think he still smoked pipes. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. Right? But, but nevertheless, because he recognized, like, listen, do I want to be an advertising slogan for someone in an area that at that time some Christians very much struggled with? We have communion to do. Let me finish this last point really quickly. Grow your faith 
without sinning. So this would be to the weak. To the strong, it's live your faith guiltless. Don't injure others. Know what is right. And I think live thoughtfully of others. Uh, grow your faith without sinning. This is for the weak. And I think the command is simply to walk with God, not compromising your conscience, but feeding it. Verse 23, for but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever has doubt, whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, meaning that it becomes sin if you are not certain that it is okay. So if you're the sensitive conscience and you're doubting, you're wavering, that's what that word means, you're, you're hesitating, then don't do it. Right? Then just don't do it. Because you don't want to train yourself to kind of break, right? Steer, break the compass that God has placed in you. You do want to recalibrate it. You want to hear from those that are strong in their conscience in that and say, hey, listen, so biblically there's no grounds for this, right? Of thinking that this is sin. To walk with them and to talk with them about that and recognize, no, that's a good brother or sister in Christ. They love the Lord. They serve the gospel, right? They do good things. But I'm not where they are about these things. Well, if you doubt, then don't do. Because the eating is not from faith. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The key is this. The wider principle is that you have to know with confidence that this is right before the Lord. Otherwise, you just shouldn't do it. Right? If you're doubting, if you, if you, were, if you, were, if you were, were desiring to have some strong libations and then all of a sudden you hear this message and you're like, dude, I kept thinking, you know, drinking alcohol is not a good thing, but man, I think I'm free, right? And you're just like, oh man, but you still aren't sure, but you're thinking, I kind of want to, right? Don't do it. Sort this out first. Start from the theological baggage, right? Or for the theological construct. Start with your relationship with the Lord first and then move out. Look, the point is, all right, we are to preserve our gospel unity, to handle that carefully because it represents everything that is true about what it means that sinners can love God and be reconciled to him and love one another and find reconciliation one to another. And we are to be that gospel expression, the outward expression of the gospel. Speaking of the outward expression of the gospel, we now transition to our time of, uh, of holiness.